You're listening to The Razor's Edge, an investing podcast. Your hosts are Akram's Razor, an investor, trader, short seller, and deep dive researcher for the last two decades plus, and me, Daniel Schwartzman, who's worked in investing media the last decade while managing my own stocks. We break down investing themes or ideas and speak with expert guests to get a wider understanding of a given topic. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance, or share this show with a friend. Reach us on Twitter at at Daniel Shortman or at Akram's Razor. You can subscribe to Akram's The Razor's Edge newsletter at the-razors-edge.ghost.io. The link is in Akram's Twitter profile. Here's our disclosure. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. We'll disclose any positions and any stocks discussed in the introduction to a given episode. We've got an all-star guest on today's The Razor's Edge to follow up on what has been not an all-star week in the markets, but something special. Compound 248, noted pillar member of Fintwit, joins us to talk Elon Musk's high-volume start as owner of Twitter, and then that whole SBF, FTX, crypto crisis. We break down how Musk could still focus on higher probability shots on goal, and we build the story as to how we got here with SBF and his rapid rise and stunning fall, or maybe not so stunning. This is a fun conversation, especially as Akram and Compound go back and forth and I get to sit back and listen. If you're unaware, Compound 248 has been quoted on the pod before, and beyond being a major player on FitTwit in general, was one of the leading voices of the Twitter ARB situation, which is where we were most likely to quote him on the Razor's Edge. So his insights here are invaluable on both topics. We don't have a disclosure section this time around, so just note that nothing on here is investment advice. Here we go. Akram, how are you doing? Good. So another another wild week. Another wild week. Uh, that's, that's that's an understatement. I I think so. <laughs> I can't. I don't remember who to give credit to, but somebody tweeted that it's wild that Facebook letting go of eleven thousand people was tech story number three of the week, and that's even before you get to the midterms. To talk about it, we've got a celebrity guest, as you said. Uh, joining us today is probably the axe on the Twitter deal as it was happening. Oh, obviously, Akram as well, a leading yeah, voice on that. Give him, the, give him the credit. I don't mind. But we've got <laughs> Compound 248 <laughs> he on He got that. it started without question. So Compound 248 <laughs> is on the podcast. Compound, welcome. What's up, guys? Thanks for having me. And uh, I, I we, cannot we at all honored. take credit for being the axe, but it was fun. It, it, it fun and for the people who stuck through profitable, which is, I guess, the best best intersection in the market. To your to your point about the the meta layoffs being like the third most, and it's it's a distant third most important story of the week. Elon was tweeting about uh, you know the FTX meltdown ransack being tracked in real time on Twitter, and the best tweet I saw this whole week was somebody commented on that and said. This is like if the Hindenburg was flying over the Titanic and the pilot of the Hindenburg told everyone to look out the window and look at it sinking. 
You know, it's like <laughs> disaster that? staring at disaster. I I saw that tweet. I'm trying to, I think we actually went around in your Slack, Akram, but I, anyway, yeah, it's been a... Uh, I didn't see that. I feel like you, when, you, when someone says that, you say, who said that? And, 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 you, and you start quoting uh, uh, The Departed. <laughs> you know, like, who said that? Hawthorne. No. <laughs> People are always, ri- families are always rising and falling in America, right? Who said that? That's, that is, yeah. Um, so where do you guys, I, I sort of leave it open, maybe compound to you. What do you, let's pick the, you pick Hindenburg or Titanic. What do you think is more interesting of those two stories? And what, I mean, we're not more interesting. Oh. Where do you want to start? I, I think the easier one to update on is, is Hindenburg, which is Twitter, right? Which is Musk taking over. And that first, we just crossed what, week two of his ownership on Thursday night. And to your point, I mean, they laid off half the firm within four days of taking ownership. And we can get into sort of why that seems to make sense um, and why he had to do such a drastic action. But the fact he laid off, you know, caught 35, 3,700 people dwarfed in importance meddling off 11,000 people somehow. And I think it's because in a no pun intended, you know, it's, it's very meta for Twitter, right? It's all happening on Twitter in real time. The people getting laid off are, you know, changing their profile pages to show they were laid off. You know, it was already the most important business story of the year. And it was kind of this initiation into what has felt like a just completely chaotic first two weeks of ownership. And frankly, I think people were suspicious that he would close the deal. So suspicious, in fact, that actually, even after he closed, which apparently happened, you know, two Thursdays ago in the late afternoon, the stock in after hours was still trading at a discount to the deal price. <laughs> See, even after it was closed, you could have technically bought the stock uh, and, and arbed it home. So it was it was a wild, wild ride. And, you know, these last two weeks have been, you know, him starting to take shots on goal, which which he has to do, uh, whether that's on the cost side or the revenue side. I think the revenue side has probably garnered even more interest than the cost side as he started to roll out his, quote, eight dollar Twitter blue verification program that turned into an absolute disaster and hilarious disaster on Twitter. The, the Coca-Cola drink Pepsi or, uh, or Do- <laughs> Doja Cat uh, Christmas, the, yeah. the, the Eli Lilly and what's it called on Friday? Insulin. Giving away insulin. Yeah. Or like, or like reacting uh, to misinformation. He's <laughs> George W. Bush changing his first tweet to, uh, this is totally inappropriate, but it was, I love killing Iraqis, right? Like it's just this, horrible set of imitations as soon as everyone started getting blue checks and realizing they could, you know, with almost no consequence, imitate anybody. The only consequence was you would lose your account and get kicked off Twitter, but they were all fake accounts to begin with. So for $8, you could create a fake account that looked like it was verified and parody just about anyone or anything in the world. And it's fine when you're making fun of George W. Bush or you're making fun of the Pope, That'll offend certain people, but the real offense is when you start imitating advertisers, right? So to the point about Eli Lilly, when somebody made a fake Eli Lilly account and said, we're excited to start giving away insulin for free, 
you know, that really does do business damage to Eli Lilly. And in fact, even though they didn't do it, you know, and said, hey, we're, we're really sorry someone imitated us, it then became its own political issue. You started to see, you know, Senator Bernie Sanders commenting on the fact that, hey, even though they didn't actually do this, everyone, you should know they are ripping you off on your insulin, right? Like that's, that's no good if you have a, you know, four and a half billion dollar advertising business that is carrying your billion dollars of debt excuse me, billion dollar interest expense on 13 billion of debt that you just put on the business. Um, and so that, that chaotic, you know, week and a half or two weeks of verification came to a, a sudden halt as they realized they had to get their arms better around like what, what that process was going to look like. Um, and frankly, Akram, I know you, you and I have talked about this. I, I don't even understand why they started with that. There's so much more low-hanging fruit for them to attack on the revenue side than, you know, muddying the yeah. water on what a blue check means. That was kind of the motivation for you on here because like I I I mean I'm sure a lot of people know but not as many probably from the Twitter R but like we were both, you know, Twitter structural bulls uh once COVID hit, right? And we went through that whole process. We, we see, you know, we, we, we clearly had strong, we could probably put it in the category of consultant level opinions on what should be yeah. done. Right. And, uh, it's, it's almost hard for us to resist it, particularly because we come, we, we come at it from that kind of, you know, finance background. I mean, I don't have a Bloomberg terminal right now, but like for all the time I've had a Bloomberg terminal and the thoughts that you've given to like for me doing what I do independently, it is my Bloomberg terminal, right? And it's a hybrid also, you know, uh, it's way more valuable than, than any of the, uh, the other social networks. It's a professional work tool. So like there's this element where you look at what he's doing right now, which, and I mean, I don't know if you listened to him the, the whole time. I think I saw you in there when, when he was being asked about what he was doing on the space. Yes. And, you know, like he gave some pretty thoughtful answers and he's like, I do think that like he's right now very proud if we, we'll get into the SBF thing later, but he seems to be very proud of the citizen journalism, which Twitter has always had within the context of uh, existing, you know, uh, media, media people. Like you saw Sachs's tweet today where like he's happy that the all in pod is here and he's like, you know, essentially like fuck the mainstream. Uh, we've done it on our own. And uh, <laughs> this. Uh, this perception that like it's a it's a town square and in this town square you know the truth will come you know from the quality of the people involved but that's always been twitter right so like i don't know how strongly you feel about that there's the element of politics and like people getting into trouble and like the trust and safety i think he's he's blurred that with this kind of you know the check mark uh you know, was a, a form of, you know, nobility and serfs, right? And, you know, he wants to open it up because at the same time, he needs revenue, right? So like, you and I don't have blue check marks. Daniel, I don't think you have one, right? No, I'm still still without one. Yeah, like we haven't, like you didn't sign up for the new blue. I didn't We're part of the like, proletariat. <laughs> yeah, right. so like, right. I mean, but I'm just saying like, if you if, if Elon posted, hey, you're getting a lot of value out of this, eight dollars, like you don't need a check mark, pay eight dollars. I'd pay the eight dollars, right? <laughs> you know, 
I'd say like there's you could charge me more for things, but like, look, it's a corporate enterprise, right? I mean, this is a for-profit business. Uh, they should have people who are competent enough to look at, and you know, this is what we've talked about. Like we've always said DMs is a starting point, right? And I have a strong view on DMs because, and I mean, I think you do as well. And I don't know like how much you've used it, Daniel, but there must be hundreds of thousands, I'm going to guess. I mean, minimum tens of thousands, but I'm going to guess hundreds of thousands, maybe a million people, okay? Uh, maybe a little bit more who are, are, are using this as a hardcore professional work tool. I mean, I, I actually ha was having a conversation with some young guy who listened to me on spaces on something and like, you know, wanted to, and, and I'm like, you know, he like, I felt like he overstepped his bounds with what he was DMing me, right? And uh, I was just like, listen, dude, I, this, I use this for work. Like, remember that at the, at, the, at the very beginning of it, right? There's an entertainment component to it, but like 90% of it, like this is a work tool. I'm on Twitter you know, as much as I am for work reasons, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's, I'm getting, I'm getting information. Um, I'm exchanging ideas with people. Uh, I'm connecting with people, right? Like it's like, you have to understand that like it's functioning as something that is indispensable for me from a work standpoint. Yeah. I mean, to your point, there's a, like, if you go on LinkedIn, you know, you can use LinkedIn in a basic sense, including a little bit of messaging to people you're connected to for free. But once you start trying to use it in a real professional, hardcore networking, expansive, like reaching out sense, they meter you. And it's, they charge you a lot for a professional account on LinkedIn. It's, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's several hundred dollars a year. And you know, yeah, I think it would be charging $39, $49 a month or whatever for the premium. Yeah. So call $500 a year. And it would be very easy, I think, for Twitter to do something like, hey, for a professional package, we're going to upgrade your DM experience on the one hand. And, you know, effectively, we're going to meter down the free DM side so that, you know, if it's pretty clear you're a power DM user, you're going to want to pay us 10 bucks a month or whatever it is, maybe 25 bucks a month, maybe 50 us. bucks a you month. No, you, this is where like, I mean, I don't know if we've discussed it as much, but you have no choice. You understand? Like whatever price, like, you know, you yes. can say we're going to, we're, we're going to charge you 25 professionals. a month. Yes. And we're going to provide, we're going to, you know, we're going to add encryption and we're going to add these features. Like from the, from the perspective of, you know, people who are like, yo, Twitter's debt is trading 65 cents. What are the banks going to do with it? You know, he threatened bankruptcy to the employees as a potential option, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, turn on the one fucking thing that like the people who presently have it, right? Like if you charge 50, you and I are paying it. Now, I think 25 is like kind of that price point where it's just like, I'm literally taxing you for what you're using, right? And it's not going to get any better yet, right? But like it, for, for when you consider like the crisis nature of what he's doing, all right, I am in utter shock. I mean, but like maybe there's a reason for it because uh, it hasn't happened yet. I mean, it didn't under happen under the past administration, right? It and, also just might not be technically the easiest thing for them to do in the first two weeks, right? Like, I don't think what we've seen yet is the limit of what we're going to like, see. You don't think that there's like a like? I mean, there there's times when you exceed that there's like the limits and like you can't send a DM. I don't remember what triggers that. 
it's like errors. It's, yeah, yeah like I have. It's an internal error in their system. Yeah, when you can't so like, see. I, you can't see updated notifications. Your DMs get like janky. Yeah, it just says like you're, you're like there's like a DM like a limit for 24 hours or something that that types of, uh, Oh, it's it's a, it's part of their preventing spamming algorithm. Right. 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 So like the, like there's something that triggers it if you're having like a a, a conversation in a certain way, and I, I tend to hit like the like right in like small like fragments. Right. Instead of like a big, uh, long explanation when I'm a, which yeah, you like said sending, sentence by sentence, as opposed to paragraph by paragraph. Yes, correct. Which is like, I, which I, I kind of got developed, you know, on WhatsApp and people used to get annoyed by it on WhatsApp because you get ping, ping, ping. Right. Uh, and, and like, it would work that way. But on Twitter, it's like even more like, I just kind of, it's a bad habit I've developed, but don't you ever uh, change, baby. Don't you ever change. It's what makes it special. But, I mean, like, yes, to, to our point, it's like, I don't really think it would be that hard. Maybe it is. Uh, I did have a chat with someone who, you know, potentially would have, you know, ha have an idea or two about why it wasn't, why it wasn't done in the past. All right. And I asked him. And I was like, is this like coming from the background of like, I'm coming from a, from a finance bias, right? And like, let's just call it a fintwit bias. But like, maybe they just don't have, maybe they don't have that visibility. Maybe they don't understand how it's used that way. Maybe they don't get like that anonymous, semi-anonymous, known, you know, like these types of things, how they, how they kind of like come together magically uh, in the pot of Twitter as a work tool, right? And that, I like, think you're that's, actually that that's what's I, what I'm trying to think about is like what was Elon's thesis for the deal? And I, I my my bias was that he actually wasn't going to spend much time on this. Like he's just going to buy it, cut costs, loosen the content moderation, and then have fun. And that was sort of where I fell out. But I wonder, like he's listening to the David Sachs and Jason Calcanis's of the world. He, that's like, what we said reportedly, right? Yes. And I would assume from the from the text messages, uh, at least on Calcanis's end. Yes. I think he also ended up taking over a business in a worse situation than he realized, right? So you had a business that just like run rate was doing 5 billion a year of revenue, which was 3 billion a year of gross profit. And on a cash cost basis, was actually losing a little bit of money. Um, so they had that 3 billion and they were spending it on, you know, SG&A and a lot of CapEx recently. And so fine to your point like if that was the case and he was taking over hey we're losing a little bit of money and we're going to add a billion of interest expense so we just got to take a billion of cost out right like that would be i'm going to lay off half the people but he disclosed actually twitter is losing 4 million dollars a day which if you do the math is a billion and a half so somewhere in there there's another half billion of losses that has built up since he, you know, since that $5 billion run rate. And if you basically assume what's happened is there's been an advertising downturn, both at the macro level, but also maybe at the Twitter level, right? Like advertisers putting things on hold because Elon is the owner. Well, if you figure, say, okay, well, that's half a billion dollars of foregone gross profit. That means basically at a 60% gross margin, it's like 900 or 800 million of advertising revenue that has disappeared, which is almost 20% of revenue. So I think what happened is he took over a hand that was worse than the one he thought he had. He thought and, he was just going to have to correct for a billion. He, it turns out he's got to somehow recapture 
another five or 600 million of gross profit to get back to break even. And that I think is what's driving this like, holy shit, we've got to pivot. We've got to throw things at the wall. And, and the reality is if you do the math on the Twitter blue thing, like it's just not going to get there like $8, which after iOS fees, right. You got to pay you. You can't even sign up for Twitter blue on your PC, which tells you like payments is a pain in the butt. You can only do it through the mobile app, which means Apple is going to take its fee. So maybe they're clearing $6 on that. Again, that's only for like US prices. If they roll it out in India, it's not going to be, you know, those prices. So like even so $6 times 12 months is, you know, $72 a year. Like how many people do you need to sign up? You need to sign up like 10 million people. They're just not going to do that in my opinion. Um, And so to Akram's point, there are ways to... I think have less negative impact on the platform and tax your power users that could have helped bridge that gap and felt a lot less chaotic Um, and DMS and creator tools. Those are to me, low hanging fruit. And then go ahead. Metering spaces. Yeah. Metering spaces. You could bring back Periscope and say, Hey, like we'll give you video spaces, but you know, you've got to pay to be able to use the video functionality, whatever. Um, and then the other thing that nobody talks about is Twitter has, you know, four or $500 million SaaS business inside of it. That is very high margin. And it, all they're doing is reselling, you know, privacy safe data from the Twitter firehose. And so if you're Bloomberg, you pay Twitter a whole bunch of money to ingest all the raw data that is going across Twitter about like usage and engagement, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, there are businesses that are built on top of that data pipe. And really Akram is who flagged some of those businesses to me. Um, Yeah. The entire, you know, uh, social media management, uh, PR management, uh, and uh, to a degree, we have no idea like what percentage of it is also financial, uh, but uh, they're all they're all sucking on the pipe. Uh, some of them have built analytical tools. Uh, there's been startups that have done like uh, crisis management stuff, you know, like Everbridge and these guys who focus, uh, you know, disaster, uh, you know, breaking news, uh, crowd analyzers. Uh, there's a security element to it, which Twitter. You know, I think Twitter had a stake in data miner, which they divested uh, because of potential conflicts uh, with owning, uh, let's call it the value added reseller on top of the pipe that's being used for maybe in some cases by governments to monitor things. There's a monitoring business, right? Social media monitoring is in of itself uh, a revenue business that presently today, I mean, if you just took the public ones, and a couple of the ones that have been consolidated by private equity, it's probably, you know, let's call it in the neighborhood of a, of a billion dollar revenue line, right? And they're do, these companies are doing a, a really high gross margin off of it. Uh, well, way higher than uh, than Elon Musk w- would like if he spent the mu- much time analyzing it, right? What truly is that like your margin is my opportunity setup. Correct. But like those are con- contractual, right? So like, you know, I don't know. Like, you, you can you can signal that you're taking in that direction. For a public company, it would be helpful. Uh, 
but I mean, as far as immediate, because it's still consolidated, uh, I mean, you could put pressure on them as well to renegotiate it uh, immediately uh, or say like, you're going to lose access and we're going to give access to some you know, new players. I mean, there's a lot of hardball that could be played there, but yeah, you're right. I mean, like we, 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 I mean, in the early days, if you remember when they did that presentation and we did like, there's the space with Ned afterwards, you know, kind of asked a little bit about the SAS side of things, what, you know, like there was a period where everyone was infatuated with SAS. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, well past that. There was, a, there was a decade that everybody was infatuated <laughs> Those with Those days are coming period. back, not, Akram. <laughs> not, a, not, not a period, a decade. Uh, but, but yes, look, last week it was pretty good. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. <laughs> last week, I mean, you know, when someone 20 years from now is is uh, listening to this brilliant podcast, they're, they're, they're going to have to go look up what happened in SAS this past week. Really what happened in the whole NASDAQ, yeah, the whole market, 10%. but especially the tech leaning NASDAQ come in. You, you had a year's worth of returns this week. And segmented into like, like the overperformance in like the place of uh, where people have just now been like, there's, I pull up the 10 K. Do you see a gap profit? I ain't touching it. <laughs> yeah. It, it, was, it was, it was those names. And by the way, that's obviously been exactly what you should be doing for the, uh, since, you know, last year, but I'd say we crossed into a point, uh, uh, you know, the liquidation, I mean, we're getting off topic, but like on, on, on the last Friday where you're just like, this is, there's some like huge, like it was like, my signal was like, this is worth that. And that's worth that. And like, this is the, there's like, because people, one thing people don't get is there's so many public companies that fit into the, you know, sub categorization. Like if, uh, if they were to classify it as an industry, right. On, uh, uh, what is it? Like the, the rating system, uh, for MSCI. Yeah. yeah, like you just be like SAS is has more listed names than maybe any other sector in terms of like a decent market cap, right? Like how many fast casual restaurant chains are there today? You know, <laughs> I mean, how many like uh, how many money center banks are there? Right? There's now just a ton of software, so like you get to a point where you're like, what? Well, like this was this is just this is crazy. Like either these have to fall seventy percent, like fifty companies. Or, you know, these 15 have to double, <laughs> you know? Yep. Like, Although and, I will like, know, that, I mean, I, I, you and I have talked a lot about these relative valuation comparisons where, you know, pager duty somehow is still trading at whatever, five times revenue. And you've got Twilio that was trading at less than one times. And, and they're different business models. So there's elements I mean, my, of that my, that makes my sense. My pager duty short thesis started out with, it was a Twilio hackathon project. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> right, and you know it, that is its origin story. <laughs> you know, and yeah. like you know where you were, where you were last Friday, there was like five hundred million difference in their enterprise values, while one is doing twenty five times the revenue. <laughs> yep, and so I mean, and there's some reason why they should trade at different valuations, but the fact of the matter is, this week both of those, and by that, I mean, both groups of those ripped, right? It wasn't even like the, the valuation, the relative valuation gap didn't really change that much. Um, so I would say that part of the thesis still holds that there is like a huge discrepancy that I, I would say is largely hard to account or explain 
inside that space. Now we have gone off topic, but I think, you know, Twitter does have this like massive SaaS business hidden inside of it that no one talks about. And it's huge margin. You're right. It is long-term contracts. I mean, you can so, do it as a licensing business, right? I mean, yeah, it's a data yeah. licensing business. So like, it, you know, uh, whether like whether Twitter decides to go directly to the customer with uh, a FinTwit level product, okay, uh, or, uh, or or something for brands from a monitoring standpoint, uh, or just like decides to charge the people who are selling those products significantly more money for what is essentially analytics with a dashboard layered on to the pipe. Yeah, so you know, I, I think he's got these easier pathways that are very high margin opportunity sets and less disruptive to the core Twitter business, right? Like the one thing that he did, in my opinion, is to add friction to the overall user experience. And if you just have a mental picture of like how you want to run this business, you want as many people to come in the top of the funnel as possible and have a low friction, easy onboard, easy engagement experience so that they become users. And then you want to engage them further and further and further so that they become power users. And it's when they're power users that they're, you know, they're either here for business or for an addiction or some combination of both. And that's when, you know, I think you want to monetize them. And the reality is this is always going to be an advertising business. There's almost no amount of subscription revenue that you can go grab that's going to allow you to cover the current cost structure. So I just think it was like a little bit of a surprising, you know, self-inflicted wound. Now I say that on the other hand, if they're to be believed, the MDAU, like the usage on the platform is, is breaking records like every day. So they're, and I, I do believe well, they, them. Have, they had an election and they've got this fucking crypto, like literally. Yeah. Uh, you no, know, they, they have the news. They have the most, like polarizing or one of the most polarizing figures in the world took over the business. The story of that takeover itself is the biggest news story of the year, at least up until the past week. And that's happening on the platform. And so there's tons of usage there. You have the political backdrop that's happening, right? We just had an election last week in the U S and then you have this crypto meltdown and like the home for crypto discussion was already on Twitter. So like, if you want to go learn about it, there's, it's a lot like there are to the citizen journalist point, there are some people on Twitter, some accounts on Twitter that are breaking news days before it's showing up in the New York times or the FT. And so like, it is the place to go to find it. And so, yeah, the usage side of the equation at Twitter is taking off. It's the price per usage that has really been struggling, right? Their ability to monetize usage. And so I, I fundamentally believe that if the usage is there over time, they'll be able to solve all the other parts of the equation. Now, over time, you put that in like that. That's a really easy throw, throwaway quote. But if you're burning a billion and a half dollars a year, you know, you're going to care about how much time it takes. And, and uh you know, I, they're, they're not going bankrupt tomorrow. They have plenty of cash on the balance sheet, I presume, from the deal that they can burn for a period of time. Um, but if it goes longer than six, 12 months, might they have to do an injection? Uh, maybe. Does, it like, is it like, does he need to see? 
like the, the stuff that we were just discussing, like if I was to ask you to guess, like that subset of what is FinTwit, do you think it's 100,000 people? Do you think it's 500,000 people? Like who would pay that $25? Because I think maybe it's a million, okay? I don't know, but- uh, I mean, if I think you look definitely... at the big FinTwit accounts, maybe as like proxies for how many people are on FinTwit, I would say it's a couple hundred thousand. Okay, so if you take it, if you take that approach and say that there's a subset, uh, then let's say you land at uh, something like uh, half a million people between you know every industry willing to pay that twenty five bucks, okay, and you get like two hundred thousand of them. All right, so you know, call that uh, you know what fifty million dollars, a uh, hundred million dollars, probably on the bottom line. Without having to do anything, but like he's not a finance guy. Calcanis isn't either, and neither of them are in the advertising business. Like they definitely, uh, like you said, they ruined for someone like me the value of the check mark, right? Like I, Although, I did to their credit, that- they they hit pause. So like, there's going to be some more blue checks out there who picked it up in the last week, but. They did hit pause. So we'll see if the value is truly ruined or if it just, you know, maybe, maybe they come to their senses. Yeah. I mean, I get what he's trying to do, but I don't really think like if the, if the, if the purpose for the $8 is I want to get your credit card information. Okay. Uh, to, to have more authenticated real users and that this will give me an edge in combating uh, what is fake and will improve the user experience. Fine. But they should have they should have kept the tier that is essentially like I, I get like I mean this is where his political argument runs into some challenges with the advertising business. It's like there's a reason to know like that that when Coca Cola tweets something, it's Coca Cola, and there's definitely a reason to know when you know a business that has liability. I mean that's part of what they have going for them, okay, in the media business, right? Tweet something, or where a jet, where when a journalist who works at one of those companies tweets something, if he tweets something irresponsible, he will lose his job, right? So, like the check mark that's been earned there, you know, or for certain celebrities where they will damage their brand, right? If they tweet things, like I think you just keep those check marks, and like you could have just gone with a different color for the, uh, you know, the verified, uh, you know, account, right? Like I guess his challenge there. Is like saying, look, you, you're going to get some, like you're signing up for this because you're going to get HD video. You may get this, you may get some content. Like you're not signing up for this uh, to make my battle against the bots easier. I think he's been too preoccupied with that. And this is where I think like if he hired somebody from like a Bloomberg or like, because the old Twitter didn't seem to understand this as well either, e- either. And Daniel, I mean, you're obviously, you've been at Seeking Alpha and Investing.com. I mean, haven't you looked at these guys over the years and been like, you know, why have they not productized, you know, their their role in this space better? Well, I've, yeah, they've, always, they've been a huge competitor. And also, I have to confess, too often I look at Twitter stories and think, that sounds familiar, the challenges that Twitter faces to at those companies. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a top of funnel. I mean, and it's such, you're seeing 
you know, this is going to be familiar to what it looks like Substack's getting a tailwind out of all of this. We'll see how, and Substack was always sort of dependent on Twitter. And so it'll be interesting. I think actually what's most interesting about all of this is his decision to antagonize advertisers. And it just makes me wonder if he's, the success, I I, I think moving fast is great, which he's done. And I, I, I respect that part of his success, but antagonizing advertisers and antagonizing power users to make a point a political point i just don't that's where i would worry about this and just that's where it's missing the most but yeah between compound was making the point you have that funnel you have a huge audience you just want to get people more engaged you have the benefit of being able to advertise to them at the top of the funnel and there are plenty of other businesses like that and then you identify where the power value is and to, you know, the point that you guys See, both but you, made. Like, but, but you hear my point, like, I mean, you and I have discussed this in the past, like, you know, people used to always ask me, like, why are you post, like, why are you having chats, you know, with all these people in the comments section of your Seeking Alpha articles? And I would be like, a lot of good shit comes out of that, because then like, once in a while, I will read, I will read the content of someone who demonstrates expert level knowledge. Okay. And I will immediately privately message them because they're anonymous, okay, on Seeking Alpha, right? And Seeking Alpha became a fantastic tool for people do not understand. I mean, it was being used heavily from a buy side standpoint to carry on the convos that would then go off platform, okay? Now, like that was kind of, you know, a core nature of it, right? Twitter has the same thing. Now, Seeking Alpha has got premium and, they, you know, they're not charging for the news, like, I mean, I think Twitter could do just like a, you know, an earnings, uh, you know, uh, uh, feed page and charge people money for it, right? Like literally just the aggregating it and uh, and posting it. I, I don't think that they've had people who work at the company who who understand that it it has low hanging fruit in finance. Like if they actually add encryption to DM and certain other things, they will capture incrementally more potentially way more okay uh usage on the dm and then they could charge even more money for it like what he shouldn't be trying to do is is flatten the existence of the anonymous account like part of the bot problem is part of the strength of the platform right part of like what spam that they combat because like there's value to people on there who like you can't do it on LinkedIn because the first thing you do is you see the resume or you see the background, you know exactly who it is. Maybe it's inappropriate to have a conversation, right? Like maybe you don't, like you're not sure if you can trust that person. Trust is built in the chats on Twitter by, by exchange of knowledge. You actually are filtering out, like it does what Elon wishes it would do. You know, when he says it, 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 it you know, he wants to, he wants to democratize everything. It democratizes the knowledge that is being shared because it, you are evaluating it yourself based on what you're doing and the other party is doing. If you don't see it, you just hit block, you move on. If like it's a private chat or you just say, I'm not interested or you don't respond at all. It's all in your control. So I, I, I think he has the wrong people. And this is where you have to look at it from, you know, some of the people who were in the business before who missed this opportunity. Uh, I, 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 I don't know whether Jack didn't get it, but like there clearly there's no finance DNA in there. And I think this is a good segue for our pivot into how Sam Bankman Fried thing turned into what it is, because 
it was tech bros getting allured by like, you know, the hedge fund world and thinking they got the, the best of the both worlds. But like, it seems Twitter doesn't have someone in the room who's like, hey, yo, they charge $3,000 a month for a Bloomberg terminal. Seeking Alpha's charging this, like, you know, let, let's just start the meter and then we'll build the encryption and then we'll raise the price and then we'll have metered spaces. Like, you know, these all these things that are just low hanging fruit. Then we can think about the other problems, but like, this is the yeah, easy I, thing to do. How, how have they never attached a cash tag to like a stock price and a little chart? You know, it's like just the easiest stuff I mean, we know stuff the guy the who world. can answer that question and he doesn't seem to like, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's I don't crazy. Know, like, I mean, it'd be nice to have a one-on-one and be like, why did none of these things happen over the last five years? And yeah, but right. anyway, but I, mean, of, I, I think they view right, it as, as so right niche. Now, people are just like, fuck it, fuck off. I'm not involved. I'm but not interested. Right. It's, it's, and it's more than just our niche, right? I mean, we just went through the election. I don't know how many times I'm going personally because I don't want to follow them to like the guy in Nevada or the guy in Arizona to just figure out what's happening. And yeah, you could act like in politics is another place where you can sell subscriptions. We know whether, I don't think political is a subscription, but like there, it's one of the verticals and they, yeah, Twitter could be the place where you start for all of those verticals. I mean, it could be a huge- But it's gotta be player. careful, right? And sure. the finance one, like there are people who would pay $500 a month and God knows what they're, what they're using it for, okay? I mean, I'm sure that's a teeny, teeny, teeny subset, but like the $25 a month crowd, like, that's like you learn about your user base. I imagine they don't have the knowledge, right? Like if I just wanted to be like, hey, turn this on tomorrow, 25 bucks metered, and let's see in two months, right? Who's paying? And then I want to take a look at that, those accounts, print those accounts up for me. All right. And let's study the usage of those accounts. Like, I mean, if they brought me in, this is what it like I would literally as a consultant, I'd be telling you this is what we need to do. <laughs> you know, I'm like. Get me the fucking knowledge to understand where we make money. My my only regret in the whole Twitter arb situation in the end <laughs> is that uh, FTX or or Alameda didn't end up you know dropping like eight billion dollars into the deal. <laughs> I mean, you go back and you read those those um, you know uh, discovery texts and emails. I mean, there's the one set from Will McCaskill, who's like the founder of Effective Altruism, which is, you know, an approach to charity that SBF was becoming the face of. And uh, he says, to, I think it's to one of Elon's bankers. He's like, yeah, you know, Sam says he's in for one to three billion. No problem. Three to eight billion. I'm, I'm doing this from memory. Three to eight billion. He's probably good for it. And eight to fifteen, he'd have to finance it, but he'd be he'd be willing to look into that. <laughs> and you're just like, God, could you imagine if he had dropped eight billion dollars into the Twitter deal? Oh God, it would have really brought our worlds together, Akram. I mean, and the whole world is debating, uh, uh, like, can 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 Elon like is, does Elon going to be able to sell four billion more of Tesla? <laughs> Yeah. How's, yeah. how's the market going to absorb it? Yeah. Like, how, like what's going to happen here? Like there was a world's richest man going to be able, and the world's richest man is not functioning. Like, cause it's happened so quick for him in the last two years. Like what, like you're getting the sense from him. He's like $3 billion is in cash. <laughs> oh, the way that Elon was so skeptical of SBF. Yeah, like yeah he's, exactly. He's, like, he's looking at that instantaneously. And he's just like, he's like, really? Because, you know, yeah, he's, he's like, held his situation with always the, the vantage guy, right? 
where like he had to go back to him, the guy who'd invested a billion and he just needed a couple hundred million and the guy like made him beg for it and, he, and then like didn't invest. And like, I mean, Elon's dealt with these things, you know, up until 2019 about, you know, how hard it is to come up with a couple billion dollars. <laughs> Right. Yeah. All yeah. People. Guy, I mean, guy, even Jeff Bezos and he's, he's, yeah. he's got ten billion in cash. Yeah, Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg aren't walking around with ten billion of cash, right? Like, it is not easy to come up with that kind of money in cash. And uh, and yeah, I mean, the signs on the SBF FTX thing, they're like, I you know, I was I had never heard of them. I don't know about you. You uh, you know, I'm I'm a little less deep in it, but I had never even heard of them until the kind of Luna Celsius Voyager window in the spring, that sort of like first when the crypto world really cracked. Um, and he was, you know, being anointed as the, the JP Morgan who's coming in and bailing out all these entities that that's really when he Morgan, like came in. Buffett. What's that? Buffett. Yeah, it, that's right. He went on fortune magazine. They say, is is this the next Buffett? And it's his cover. I mean, incredible. But I'd never heard of him before that. So I didn't really have the context to understand like how much money he did or did not have. And I'll say I was pretty credulous. Like I believed, you know, he's being anointed as this genius. Um, he sounds very smart. You know, he, he clearly seems like one of the smartest guys in the room. And it like it was very easy for me to imagine, oh, what he's trying to do is build Citadel, but in crypto world, right? And he's used FTX to basically turn into his, you know, way of doing uh of like vertically integrating a payment for order flow market maker with, you know, an actual marketplace brokerage. And then he's clipping off of that. And I was like, oh, this guy, you know, he's a genius. Um, and wow, how, I mean, going back in time and starting to see, or, or like for the first time reviewing all these things that I'd never looked at before. I mean, there were red flags everywhere on this guy. I mean, it's insanity how many there were. I mean, look, I'm in the same camp as you. I definitely had heard about it earlier than you. I definitely was in my face in some areas like, you know, in that like Axie and, uh, Anna Monica and, uh, some of the other stuff that like had interested me in crypto, uh, and like private investments in VCs who I know, but like to the extent of him as a whale, uh, and like paying attention to just him himself and him as a, as a hedge fund. I had no, like, well, I think we're all in the same camp. Like, that's like something that we got, we got in, we, we got color on after Luna blew up. Like, you know, it would be their 2018 19 investor deck. Like, you know, we're finance guys, right? If I, if I presented that, you know, to raise money for a hedge fund, I mean, I, I would expect nine out of 10 people to tell me, like you're, this is a scam. Yeah. It's not <laughs> only, am I going to say no, it's it, the, if, I, if someone ever showed me that deck and just for context for people who haven't seen it yet, you know, it's like a six page presentation trying to raise money and they're promising 15% quote guaranteed returns annualized. And if you want higher and you have a big enough check, they're willing to have a discussion with you about it. But they, yeah, it's a, they, it's a cap they guaranteed, guaranteed it. They guaranteed it. It was like 
It's unbelievable. And it says like zero risk of loss and like a large subheading. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it right? truly was from the standpoint of someone who's seen a lot of those presentations, it, it was a laughable presentation. I mean, like distressingly laughable, right? Where you're like this, but if it showed like up, I would actually assume it's a fraud. Because like, it, like they, they're math nerds, geeks, like it doesn't seem that they have any context of the financial world. Right. Because in the financial world, you know, like, let's say you have a black box. You, I mean, only the people who don't really understand that they have a black box. Uh, if you have a black box and you're essentially constrained presently by capital and you want more access to it, you sure as shit don't market it that way. You will mark you, you will in fact make it look a little bit more volatile than it really is. Okay. Like, if I actually had built something quantitatively, you know, that was an arbitrage and I essentially just needed more money. Okay. Uh, I would, I would promise them, you know, way lower returns. I would obviously say there's a risk of loss. There's always a risk of loss, right. Uh, and anything that's arbitrage related. Okay. And I, I would try to get, because, if, because if I felt like essentially when you're doing arbitrages, you're constrained by size, right. At some point, it doesn't work anymore, right? Because if you get bigger, then then it, it disappears. Yeah, so, and now, I mean to be a little fair, like the market got a lot bigger in the meantime, right? So like correct. their opportunity set in theory grew with them, and and maybe just to like level set for the world on who Sam Bankman-Fried and Alameda and FTX are, you know, I mean SBF, he's the founder of these two entities. And his background is working for kind of like a, a decent, not that great quant hedge fund called Jane Street in his early 20s, right out of college, Stanford yeah, guy, MIT. MIT, yeah, MIT guy. Both his parents are Stanford law professors, smart, you know, whatever. He founds a hedge fund called Alameda when he's in his mid-20s. And it's with a bunch of people who have no experience. I mean, the slide deck has- 17, right? 2017. That's right. So he's 30 now, right? So that's five years yeah. ago. So he's 25. 25. Yeah. He's got two and a half years of experience of like being a junior guy <laughs> at an okay quant hedge fund. Um, but he has this view that like, hey, I can go clip spreads off of, you know, these huge arbitrage opportunities that exist in just loosely the Bitcoin world, right? Like, so Bitcoin trading on one exchange in Japan trading 1% wide of Bitcoin trading on another exchange in the US. And I'm going to like, just yeah, go grab premium, those gaps. Dude, don't use, use the proper, the term, like it's, it's described <laughs> in the write-ups. It's, it's you go for mind. it, go it's, ahead. I know it's it, your it's favorite the, thing. It's the, it's the Nash equivalent theorem, you know, like he's going to win a Nobel Prize. It's like, SBF discovered the kimchi premium and the kimchi premium, you know, because Bitcoin in Korea is trading at 15,000. But in the U.S. at ten, and there's certain, you know, I mean, clearly because of the banking system, liquidity, uh, FX, etc., certain barriers. But he found a way, and soon he had a money minting press. Brilliant, right? Like it's your classic, essentially FX arbitrage story, which, like, you've, you essentially the market gets more liquid, 
you know? Uh, yeah. But in his defense, he was early to it. Right. Correct. So he's, he's making probably, I mean, we don't know for a fact, but he was probably making I I actual real premium. returns. I mean, the kimchi premium would have been great. I've been like, Oh, nice hundred million dollars. Thank you. Yep. So then on the backs of those early successes, he raises venture back. He raises venture money for a new venture called FTX, which is to build an actual like Coinbase competitor, so to speak. Right. So you go open an account on FTX and it's your wallet and you can buy and sell and trade. And actually it becomes one of the most aggressive platforms or one of the best platforms for people who want to be very aggressive with their crypto investing. It offers futures and shorting and all sorts of leverage to the user, which if there's anything, you know, if you are being offered leverage in a brokerage account, you should always know that means you don't own the security. You have an account and you are part of like a giant pool of assets. And so if it goes bankrupt, you don't own anything except a claim against that brokerage. Very different than like at Coinbase, where you have one-to-one custodied assets. If Coinbase you know, disappeared, fell, went bankrupt tomorrow, your assets are segregated and they'd be yours, right? So like you remember two, when that, like, two different business global. models. You remember when MF Global hit and all the online brokers started being like, you can choose where you custody? Yes. Yeah, right. I mean, this is the story of like Lehman. You know, if you were prime brokerage customer at Lehman, you know, turns out, well, actually, you just have a claim against Lehman. You don't actually own your assets. That's true at every prime brokerage. Um, and that actually was one of the worries when the Robinhood GameStop phenomenon was happening a few years ago, all the same kind of things. So he starts this brokerage firm, FTX, and he's just like, I mean, again, you go back and you read some of the VC praise for this guy it is as if he's like venture capital jesus i mean i i don't want to like call out any firm by name but you can just search for such a perfect record it's sequoia and uh, i mean i don't i think they they took down the whole story i mean they shouldn't be ashamed of themselves i think they handled it perfectly well right i can totally understand how uh people who have been making a fortune off technology thought that they had just like got you know uh, uh, Google meets the medallion fund, right? That's exactly right. And, it was Citadel. It's Citadel. Yeah. And then, and that like, you know, for them, it's like, oh, we get the best of both worlds. Right. I mean, he really, I mean, like his idea to create the exchange, like, you know, was, was a nice follow through. Like he's like, oh, I made all this money because this huge, uh, illiquidity and, and problems exist in the market and there's a lack of awareness and so on and so forth. And like when he really took it to the next level, I mean, it's no coincidence that like, you know, he does FTX Arena. He, he buys the umpires in MLB. Uh, he gets Larry David to do the Super Bowl commercial. He, he gets, gets Tom, Tom Brady, Brady and Giselle. As, uh, as his pitch man. At Tom Brady, Giselle, and Steph Curry, right? But, I mean, he but hold got on. Let's, 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 keep build, let's keep putting blocks in place, right? So we've got Sam. We've got his hedge fund. We've got FTX. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. As much as we're kind of pooping on them in retrospect, nothing wrong yet. Right. Even FTX, the business, which we now know the non US, and it's important to realize there's a US FTX and a rest of the world FTX, same ownership, but two different legal entities. And the one that first got into trouble was the non US. And even today, it's not obvious to me that like FTX itself 
would be having any fundamental problems except for well, the fact uh, I was going to say I, except for the know. fact that he but, as like, it turns out crypto is like 15 to 1 leverage on everything and like uh, well but really, yeah also but like it's, it's what, just rehypothecated down the chain so like it doesn't really wouldn't have the people who are interested in it once they once that was exposed yes 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 but i mean uh, there's also the element that it appears they had 16 billion of customer assets and they had turned around ftx non-us had 16 billion of customer assets and they had turned around and lent 10 billion of those which fine banks lend out a ton of money they lend out to, but they don't do it to one person who happens to be the owner of the business and what is the collateral they got in exchange for that 10 billion so they lent alameda 10 billion dollars of customer funds in exchange for a newly invented shitcoin called ftt right so that was their collateral was they created a new coin and to your it's point Akram, all they though, had right? to do was control the trading of that coin, and therefore they could control the price, which also helps them set their own collateral value, right? So by like by basically pegging the price of that coin and controlling all of the float of it, they could make it look like it was worth a lot. So yeah, they there's float this weird thing in crypto, which I'm sorry to cut you off, but where like uh, the issued token of an entity, right? FTX has, you know, Top tier investors, Sequoia, BlackRock, Lightspeed, blah, 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 right? And it's being marked. Uh, it's got, you know, uh, a cap table. And it's marked at $35 billion on its last round, like any typical private company. But like in crypto, like we saw this a lot because I spent so much time on this one, you know, with like Sky Mavis and Axie Infinity, right? You got these hybrid dynamics where like all these companies also issue like these utility tokens. And it's like really, uh, vague, like what the economic value in this case, the FTT token, you know, gets you some sort of uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, discount uh, rebates on trading, you know, like that's where it's like so, like owning it uh, uh, as like a source of, but people treat these tokens just like AXX, right, in the treasury, uh, which you know was part of breeding, they treat them as a proxy of the equity. Right, like would they, would they refer to them and 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 fully diluted market caps and circulating market caps, like there's a float, right? But like for all intents and purposes, they tend to function like a currency versus a low float uh, security that gives you ownership in the actual underlying business that people, you know, uh, is are is getting attention. So like the 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 the, the fact that this had the bluest of blue chips investors in the exchange. And the exchange had this $35 billion valuation really played to the favor of, of FTX to issue significantly as many tokens, because when they raise money from Sequoia and BlackRock, they just can't go out, right, uh, and lend it to their hedge fund, right, and go trade with it. But when when they raise a billion, because they didn't raise that much, just under $2 billion for this $35 billion exchange. But it looks like they got $10 billion for the hedge fund by leveraging the tokens, right? And the tokens really are leveraged on the perception of the value of the exchange because they're linked to the exchange. And we've seen this with so many things in crypto. And that's where like, you know, like part of the core problem exists in crypto because it's like, 
if you take Axie Infinity's, you know, $140 AXX price a while ago, only, you know, I got it down to one point that like 1.8% was free float. Like it had been coming down, was going in reverse because of the breeding. And then it got worse when they introduced the staking, right? Like they started at a 20% free float and it went reverse. And the whole purpose of the float was it was supposed to be going up. I mean, they, they, when they get all these companies publish their white papers, they'll be like, here's where we'll be in two years. They will all be unlocked and circulate. I'm, I'm pulling right? you back. I'm pulling you back. We're coming back from Axie Infinity. It's like, I totally agree. It's, it's crazy, right? It, I mean, the FTT token itself is effectively an invented, you know, shit coin. And, you know, as Matt Levine, the great Bloomberg writer wrote, he said it would be inappropriate for Lehman or any, or for Goldman to accept its own stock as collateral. Right, because the reality is, in a disaster, it's self-feeding. Well, it'd be even worse if the stock was like a made-up concept that doesn't even have a real economic claim, you know. And it's or, even or worse. It's even worse claim. if that's like the whole collateral of your business. And then it's even worse if it's an insider who's running your business who is doing this whole thing. So it's not obvious to me that like FTX itself had like a real. Like there's, it's not obvious that like the brokerage element of it wasn't sort of a perfectly fine, acceptable business. They just used it as a tool to fund the hedge fund. And clearly at some, I was going to say, clearly at some point in the spring, one of those like bumps in the night around three arrows capital or Terra Luna or Voyager or Celsius, at least one of those probably blew a hole in the Alameda balance sheet. And that I think is what set off like a desperation set of quote bailouts this summer, which is they need to stabilize this market and all these little crap coins that are on all these balance sheets. Because what happens is if it goes into a downward spiral is it creates this constant negative loop where the hole in their balance sheet gets bigger and bigger. And that's exactly what appears to have happened. And so they had to just hive off more and more of FTX's user funds to try to plug the hole in the Alameda balance sheet. Um, so till, that, till, till, till that coin, coin uh, uh, whatever you call it. Coin uh, desk story. Well, that, coin that, desk story. Let right. Match, so that's 10 right? days ago, it, basically. Because you and I, and I mean, I don't even, Daniel, if you've been watching, like I didn't even know about FTT. I mean, I didn't know it existed, despite my, the time spent on an AXX, right? I didn't know that there was a hybrid security uh, of value being issued by the exchange. I just thought this was 35 billion, cap table 2 billion, here are the investors. I was really curious how it was at 35 and not being marked at like, you know, five to 10, right? Like that's where I was like landing. And you, and you and I have discussed this compound because you're just like, everyone kept tossing around a billion dollar revenue number in the last year. They took off in 2021 right? Like mid 2021. And they actually had momentum that carried, like they were doing as good as, they, as best as they were doing from like, let's say assets on the platform in, in 2022. Like they carried into 2022 as the darling, right? Like that's when they get really into the, the branding and like they start really winning because they were a nobody exchange in terms of the players of the game uh, in early 2021. They were very down low on the rankings. They had a huge market share surge relative to their competitors. 
And I mean, going back to like that story, right? Their first investor puts $100 million for 20%, and it's the founder of Binance, you know, the biggest exchange, the Chinese one, right? With its quasi-regulatory dynamic, and this is where we, you, you can go off, off topic, but Binance exits, right, for 2 billion. So they make 20X, right? But like, I don't understand why they weren't paid in cash, but that seems to be the name of the game in the space, right? Seems like Binance was paid substantially in their own token, BNB and FTT. And when that report from CoinDesk came out on that Wednesday and Thursday or whatever it was, and you saw Ten days ago. sitting up, yeah, on all this FTT, you're like, oh my God, <laughs> you know? Like, I didn't even need to like understand too much about FTT. I'm just like, there's, they have a shit coin, uh, like you, you described it from their exchange and they control the vast majority of it. And uh, they're borrowing against it. <laughs> and we, we should put two more pieces into place right now. So Binance was the seed investor in FTX. So they have this old, but they're competitors. So they have this long running relationship that is over time became frenemies. Binance is run by a guy whose initials are CZ in Chinese, you know, made anglicized. Yeah. And so wow. everyone just calls him CZ. And over so that that coin desk report comes out and shows everybody, hey, look, Alameda's balance sheet is full of FTT. And he, so CZ, two days later or whatever, comes out and says, we're going to sell all our FTT. <laughs> right? Which we like, received I, as proceeds I'm out. Exit, exiting the deal. But we'll that's do it right. in a controlled manner. That, that's exactly not, right. So, we're not happy with the conflict. So immediately people understand, like the jig is up, so to speak. Right. It's like, oh my gosh, there's no way there's a market for someone to absorb. I can't remember how much FTT Binance had, but it was like half a billion dollars. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no way there's a market to absorb it. Right. The only real buyer of that would be FTX or Alameda. And they can't because that puts them in a clear death spiral. Right. But they say, hey, we'll we'll try. Yeah. They say we'll buy all all of it at 22, which is going to drain all their cash liquidity. They, they, they instantly, like, they again, try to project strength. And it appears that's what he was doing with that, with the attempted, re- remember that when he tried, this is when you start going looking backwards and it's like, oh, it made no sense that they were trying to get a $35 billion paper mark for the exchange in a round in September, right? After everything that had happened, you're like, Coinbase is $13 billion, right? Like, you know, let's say you did a billion in revenue, like, and you're doing fine, like, all right, you're probably not, like everything has been cut in half or 80%, right? Like the idea that you would have some of your private sector guys intentionally prop you up, right? You know, to, to, to what end? And we now understand to what end because like it was all kind of linked together. Like if you could get a 35, I imagine like this, you know, now 30 years old, but like, like, let's just conclude that these guys are finance illiterate, despite how math smart they are, right? Like, like you said, that you know, little heads chun, whatever, uh, or maybe just really like finance super smart in terms of like you know intentional fraud and how confidence schemes work. But I mean, it would appear his thinking was FTT's strength is derived from confidence in the valuation of FTX, which has the bluish chip investors. If after this disaster and you know collapse in growth, uh, growth assets and VC assets, 
there were the, the, the you know the sequoias of the world were were still willing to put hundreds of millions of dollars into me at an unchanged valuation you know that tells something right that's what he was trying to do absolutely and, and that never happens and then like he kind of walks it back right the rumors break and he's also like everyone the how he used twitter seemed to be brilliant and then it turned into total backfire Right. Oh, you mean his apology to her or prior? Just, I'm just saying in general, like because like when 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 the, when the story broke on on the FTX raise, you know, he is like, hey, people, we don't need the money. Like he's doing like, you know, he starts doing these things. He's like, we just want it to be opportunistic. And like they were doing it. They did a ton of investing. Like you pointed out the Voyager BlockFi that happened, which now we view the light and say, oh, like he stepped he, in to prevent contagion to make depositors whole, but then he forced all these depositors onto his platform and increased his assets on his platform, right? Which, which, which he, he has using. subsequently stolen. Yep. Yes. Right. So like everything that, like you start looking at every investment that he's made, you know, since, uh, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, Luna blew up yep. and be like, like it's, you know, it's all kind of linked together to projecting, to projecting strength you know, to buy time uh, to consolidate. Now there's people who are looking at politically and saying like, you know, was he, was he, was he doing all this and trying to just, you know, make a, make a play to, you know, to, to hurt Binance. Right. And then to get enough inflows, you know, for this problem to almost permanently go away. Right. And like, you know, like, you know, if markets recover, right. Like his whole takes care of itself because he's so levered. Right. right. He gets a leverage return. Like, I mean, yeah, to he your... gets like essentially infinite free money, like at some point risk assets pop and like his hole is plugged and he unwinds it, you know, and nobody, nobody ever knows what happened. Right. I mean, to the, your the, point, the, that's the, the rogue trader hybrid of, between the rogue trader and the Bernie Madoff that's occurred here. Right. Yes. Because which like, is, I do think both things have occurred here. Like there is some, something went bad trading and then they, at, at the minimum subsequently, and maybe even predating, started committing allegedly like yeah, amazing, amazing fraud, trades, amazing right? fraud. Like, but I, 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 I just want to go story. to you, like, some, something you said, something you said just a minute ago, which is, you know, the way he used Twitter started backfiring. So coming back to what I said, like 30 minutes ago, I didn't really know who this guy was. And when he started tweeting, everything's fine over last weekend. So, you know, and I guess the first weekend of November, I, I think you and I, we were DMing and I, I started putting out the, that Jim Cramer, you know, um, Bear Stearns epic rant. And in the mm. middle of it, he's yelling, Cramer is yelling at Bear Stearns, never explain, never complain. Right. And that I didn't know anything about FTX's situation, but it was obvious to me, they were in a huge huge problem because he was explaining and complaining, right? And in a levered institution, you cannot do that. You just can't. I mean, the only explanation you can give is to just show somebody the audited clean books, right? Like we're fine. Like you, you if, if you're just going to try to tell people, trust me, like you have lost the game at that point. Can you just elaborate why, like just felt like, why do, why does that make sense? What, like, why, why should you shut up and just point to the books? Just because if you don't have the books, you're screwed. Because it's implied that you're using their money for your trading. And as soon as they have to worry about that, 
the easiest decision to do is take their money out. Right. But right. it's you shoot first, ask it. So it's game theory. Nothing. It's game theory. You have if you have money with any levered entity, but let's just call it FTX, you do not need to wait to find out, am I screwed? Your first action, as soon as you have any worry, should be to get your money out, right? Like, and you know that everybody else is going to have the same worry. <laughs> and so it's like a race. Now, of course, you know, the, the way bankruptcy law works is anyone who got their money out is going to have to give it back, so to speak. It, it's going to create all sorts of legal problems. But like, yeah, I mean, it, it is built on top of trust and confidence. And, you know, as soon as you start realizing, oh my gosh, this might be a levered situation. And, oh my gosh, it's levered on top of this crazy shit coin. And, oh my gosh, Sam is saying, hey, hey, trust me. You know, the other smartest now, guy in the room, CZ, doesn't know what he's talking about. Everything is fine. <laughs> like, it's he's, disaster. He's and like, that, that, that's why the whole banking regulatory framework exists. Uh, uh, we had Lehman as our prime in 08 uh, oh. in Dubai. And uh, I still remember that the, the, the Lehman institutional salespeople were great. And they were definitely my favorite coverage people uh, for us. And, you know, our prop book, like, you know, it was a you know, full service investment bank, but our, our, like our prop book, you know, would deal with them directly. And so would uh, the private, uh, private bank. But uh, when, when the rumors started, and people got concerned, right? Our CEO like kind of called me in. It wasn't like my job, but like, you know, I'd been bearish on Lehman. Uh, I wasn't telling them to get off of Lehman. You know, I wasn't thinking that way. That wasn't in my head then. I wasn't like your prime brokerage assets are, uh, you know, are going to be a problem if they're stuck at Lehman. Like that, I, that hadn't evolved in my thinking. But they ended up, Goldman was essentially calling us and being like, you feel safe with them, right? So like to his point here, like view Goldman as, as Binance, you know, and, and Lehman, the super levered because of its real estate, which I had been writing about, you know, and like, it wasn't like I figured it out. Like I'd read Einhorn's work. Right. And I had, I mean, I had been spending more time on the broader housing market and, and how it all tied together uh, in terms of uh, the real estate products. Uh, but like, the call once you get to the point where like you're on the phone like where our institutional sales girl is like we can do a call with treasury and we did a call with treasury and when the call was over the head of compliance asked me what i thought and i was like just switch prime brokers (laughs) right like even though like they held our hands and walked us through us and by the way that was a big move because if you had gotten stuck there it was a mess yeah but in you're right in the end these are commodity products Right. Like it's like you don't care that much whether you're at Bank of America or Wells Fargo. Right. You care a lot if your bank is saying, hey, hey, don't worry, everything's going to be OK. You know, you're like, oh, my life savings are in there. Um, and so I you mean, collapse is, the as- leverage. Right. Like Goldman was feeding on Lehman. But what got what, what saved Goldman, like we could we would eventually have gotten to a point where there was no prime brokerage business and you had to just restart. Right. But ultimately, you know, the the federal government stepped in and put an end to that uh, collapsing leverage situation, right? And that's like why the, the person who moved to Goldman, if you kept moving up that, you, you moved up that chain, you at least were, were backstopped at the end of the day by the government needing to preserve order because you can't just have one counterparty with everybody trading at the end, right? So like, uh, like once you got to that point, 
it's stabilized. So, so Daniel's question to you, where he's like, why? Like explain, like the minute you're explaining and you're leveraged and you know, you're running a leveraged business, right? Like the, there will be enough smart people who will move first. And because of the game theory element, okay. Cause they're going to move it to where it's just safer. Okay. And like, it's just a no brainer decision. And the minute that they do that, if you're leveraged, <laughs> that triggers the classic run, right? And right, because it even, just makes you more levered. Correct. And even and this is even if you didn't have some rogue trade hole, right? And and you had like the worst collateral, truly the worst collateral truly in the, the history worst, of the right? world. Like, I mean, I think everybody <laughs> at this point has seen uh, what's the name of the movie where they where they simulate Lehman again with Demi Moore. Too big, and, big uh, I don't know. <laughs> margin call? No. Margin call. Okay. And like they have like they're, they're like, you know, this is what happens if the music stops. And it's like they're like, no, if the music stops, you know, it's way worse. This is what happens if the music slows down. And they've got the rocket scientist kid. He's like, why are you here? It's like the money's better, right? And they're running a simulation model essentially on the on the CMBS portfolio, right? Because there's a time period, which is what was the problem at Lehman. They have to take these things, package them together, and then move them off their books to pension funds and idiots and around the rest of the world and who, what, whatnot. And that was a profit machine, right? But like, if you get stuck with a good percentage of it, right, the argument was your equity's wiped. Now, Lehman could not show up you know, on that analyst call. Fold couldn't be like, here's what the real market value is of all you know, our mortgage book, <laughs> right? that's sitting on balance sheet and it's supported by this much equity because that was the debate, right? So the debate was over what is that collateral? And once that you were in that debate, right? There was nothing to do other than to raise an insane amount of money that's highly dilutive, right? And solve that problem overnight or, you know, just essentially get it off your books as fast as possible. You know, which is, you which is what, I mean, that is to FTX's, credit, so to speak. That's what they tried to do. So we really first learned disaster was happening when they signed an MOU with who else? Binance. The guy, CZ, who said he's going to catalyze the whole disaster, shows up and says, I'll also rescue you. And you and I were extremely skeptical that he would actually go through with that. And he didn't. They like two days later walked away. And as, as amazing as this whole collapse is, you know, I it gets worse. I mean, it's crazy. We have subsequently learned that who, who's no one's quite sure exactly what has gone on. But since the collapse and after they filed bankruptcy and therefore has been taken over by like a bankruptcy estate, you know, specialist, the lawyer who oversaw the Enron wind down after that happened in the like late at night. We started to see hundreds of millions of dollars of FTX assets getting drained out. Like you could watch it happening on the blockchain and somebody somewhere was basically robbing FTX after it had filed bankruptcy. And that's when it actually started to leak into FTX US because that was also FTX US assets being pulled out. Um, and now since then we've started to see like this crazy collection of companies that they've invested in. I think they have over between the Alameda and FTX entities, there's over 500 venture capital investments they've made. 
They're one of the largest shareholders of Robinhood, which that's fine. You know, nothing wrong with that. But I, I mean, it's just, it is a, like, we, we have only begun to scratch the surface. So all the fascinating stuff that's happened so far, I mean, the way I describe it is you're just walking along and it's like a gold nuggets, just like sitting at the surface. And for the next two months or years, really, people are going to be mining down to figure out all the connected pieces to this. And we, we don't know where the $10 billion went. Like, who has it? Like, if, how did they lose it? What's like, wait, where is it? Was it lost, like in a fair way, so to speak, and someone else won the 10 billion? Was it taken and stolen? Like, is it tied up in a whole bunch of private investments? We literally have no idea. There's just $10 billion missing. No one can account for it. And it's user funds, right? So it's like, if you, if you were an international depositor at FTX, that's your money. And we just don't know where it is. And one of the things I wanted to sort this has come so fast, but you did a great job building the blocks to this story. No blockchain joke there, but the how much like one of the stories that came out of this was CZ making a Game of Thrones like move here, like you said, pulling the plug out of FTT and then offering to buy, pulling like just truly. Machiavellian stuff is sort of how it's painted. And I, mean, I think it's important to say that, like, it can be viewed that way. And it can also be viewed as totally honest. To- totally irresponsible. Like, yeah, like, hey, you, this, this FTT I own really is a problem, <laughs> right? Like, I'm out. Um, yeah. But I, I continue where you were going, because I think there is a potential angle down that road. Well, the, the two things I'm curious about, I guess I'm getting, are like, how much of this was inevitable and maybe this these past two weeks have accelerated it but ultimately i mean it sounds to me like having i'm at least one or two levels further away from understanding this than you guys are it seems to me like hearing all that that this was a matter of time before ftx blows up you can say the same for binance maybe down the road and then crypto eventually all together is it inflated that like you know when when Solana was trading at 250, okay, and you have such a big stake, it has this thing called Serum, right? Which is a DEX on Solana that like presently is down to like a 3 billion fully diluted market cap. But really, that's based on him owning 2.2 billion of it and the circulating market cap being $60 million. And him still right? being SBF, right? We're still... Yes. Because that was tough. Yeah. Right. right. So like he's made these, he's made a bunch of like he makes a bunch of, you know, concentrated bets in VC crypto. The crypto, let's call it a bull market slash total bubble hits. And he's looking for ways to crystallize really significant paper wealth that like either he really understands he can't crystallize by selling it because he'll destroy the, the, the value and that he determines. The most efficient way of doing it is to use these assets as collateral, all right, within a system. And that system has people like these lenders who were offering high deposit rates for staking in these things. And just like him offering, offering his 6% for like Bitcoin being staked with him, uh, et cetera. And they lend him money at a high LTV ratio against assets that, you know, should have like, a, a, you know, minimum 
you know, 30, 40% loan to value, right? Because he's like 80%, 75% or 90% of the market of the token, right? He dwarfs the free, a free floating value. So if there was like, if these function like securities, you know, they weren't just hybrids in terms of a circulating supply, uh, but because they're hybrids, every proportional, like once you become agnostic on that, the, the, the view should be, if you go from 1% trading to two, right? That's like a stock split, right? So if you were trading, the, the circulating value was, you know, a uh, hundred million, and the you know that's that's representing one percent of the coins in circulation, and the holder of ninety six percent of them, you know, unlocks and sells an incremental one percent. You know, all things being equal over time, because again, like there's no intrinsic way of really linking and measuring the value of that token, that you will have just doubled the supply for the very same thing. So what should happen to the price in that market? It should have, right? Like this goes, this was, Axie actually had weird things in this dynamic too, because it was like part of the game and like it had a feedback loop and it was actually draining the supply and causing like a, a squeeze. But like, that's the point. So like maybe he reaches this decision and I don't know whether Compound sees it that way, but like very clearly he made a conscientious decision uh, at some point in time to leverage these very illiquid things for collateral which I'm going to guess was in some sort, like, again, remember, he's a currency arbitrage, kimchi premium, Nash equilibrium, beautiful mind, okay? Like, he's, like, that's, like, he, he had something that worked, like, it, that was consistent. These are mathematical people. Like, these are the types of people who do index rebalancing trades and whatever. They're not having a conversation on whether or not, like, you know, this business is going to be interesting over the next five years and who the management team is and, like, whether they'll gain this market share. like. They're, they're running financial models uh, for their trades. So, I mean, I think when you think of it that way, uh, there had to have been some leverage trade like in a long-term capital scenario that blew up. And then there was also on the back of this, this weird dynamic, which is like the Madoff element, which is, you know, there was people who are willing to give him money because they believed that like, that what was being projected was like he had visibility into this ever-growing exchange called FTX and that like he's paying you 6% because he's using your money and he's trading against you and he's earning super normal returns. He's front running. He's doing something that it's quantitatively, you know, magical, right? Like people believe that Bernie Madoff, some of them, you know, were just like the market maker business, which really didn't make any money really of note, Right like existed and he was there as this biggest market maker on NASDAQ because the magic was in his hedge fund. Well, right? and that's, that's where I can under make the Citadel comparison and say like, I can kind of get people thinking that there's like a real there, there, right? Like, Hey, he sees all the flow. He's able to like sort of buy from you for a slight discount and sell to the known buyer that he sees, right? Like he's sitting in the middle um, and I used to, I mean, I have publicly complained about like Coinbase's fees, right? You're like, dude, they charge you 2% each way. And you go look at FTX, they hardly charge you anything. <laughs> now you understand why, right? Like Coinbase doesn't make money on your money sitting in your account. And whereas FTX did, 
And those different business models say a lot. I mean, the reality is it's arguable Coinbase is undercharging me for what I do there because they provide me safety and security that, you know, these higher margin structures aren't willing or able to do. Um, and potentially it was legal, right? Yeah. Like potentially yeah. it was legal, but because of the, the, the conflicts of interest, like there should be a person, you know, separate from SBF who sits within FTX, who says serum shitcoin that we, you controlled 98% of, I will lend you 5% loan to value, right? Like, yes, you yes. can get a 2.2 billion on your balance sheet, but it's got a circulating market cap of 60 million. Right. right? I'm, I'm, so I'm going to haircut you by you 95%. Exactly. That didn't happen here, right? Like that's where, that's what he seems to have abused. And it seems like, his, it seems all the way, by the way, that his executives were now hearing from the Wall Street Journal you know, we're aware of a lot of the things going on with the, with the deposits. He's called the he's called it accidental, right? That was his tweet. It was, that that tweet was unbelievable because you know, you know, the accidental if, if you, use of customer deposits. Well, not only that, he claims he didn't understand like how much leverage that FTX had, and you know, if you go back and you watch when Matt Levine interviewed him this past summer, he puts. Matt Levine says, how do you know which businesses that you're willing to step in on? And he says, well, the, the gating conversation is, do you understand your assets and your liabilities, right? And he puts his left hand up for assets and his right hand up for liabilities. He's like, if you can't describe those to me, and like, we can't even have a conversation. And now in his own apology, he's like, it turns out, <laughs> whoops. I'm really sorry. And then 10 hours later, somebody is stealing hundreds of millions of dollars out of those accounts. So we, we should probably uh, head towards a close here, guys. I guess what I'm, I, I think I'll just ask it sort of plainly that to, to me, this at the very least, I'm a cryptic, crypto skeptic anyways, but it seems to cast questions across the space. I, but it, I don't know how, I guess, how big is this? I mean, it's obviously been the story of the week, if not a more important, but does this have contagion? Does this have, like, does this, how much does this matter to those of us who are sort of buried in financial statements or following the general macro economy or just what's most, I don't know. I, I leave it open from there. Compound, I'll give my you, perspective. Yeah. And then um, I, I think it's, it matters a lot. So to me, this is a bit like pushing Lehman and Madoff together, right? So, which by the way, those things happened like three months apart. So in crypto world, things are happening in dog years. It's this, this is kind of like those getting pushed together, but what did and did that not do, right? So it called into question a lot of business models. It called into question the way transparency is or is not demanded by clients. But it's, and to certain people, it may even have called into question, like, what does the dollar mean? Like, and, you know, you set off a whole sort of libertarian crypto anarchic movement that came out of that. I, I look at this and I say, yeah, it, it's a huge problem. It should raise tons of questions. I, I think beyond this, there's a lot of um, coin pumping where 
people deserve probably to go to jail that well beyond what we're talking about here. And I suspect there are more failures to come, right? So Lehman happened. And then the next week you had AIG and Wachovia by the end of the month. And you had Merrill getting bought out, but like, right. It was just complete chaos and you broke the buck. So maybe breaking the buck would be like, if one of the stable coins starts to fall. So, so I think we could see, quote, yeah, by the contain- way, explain that. What, what, explain broke the buck to our listeners. Oh that yeah. Was, so broke the buck on money, money market funds. What happened then? Sure. Like, I mean, if you ever look at your brokerage account statement at Schwab or whatever, and it says you have $10,000 of cash, there's no such thing as cash, right? Like you don't have cash. They have taken the money that a bank sent them digitally and they invest it in something, right? Like they're not holding, it's either a bank deposit, which fine, like that's not actually cash either. Like you look at your bank statement, it's not cash, even if it says cash, or most likely they put it in something called a money market fund. And you just think of that as a cash proxy in your head, but a money market fund is really a mutual fund that is designed to be perfectly liquid. So everything in it is caught 30 days or less. But there's lots of underlying loans, most of which are going to be to the U.S. government. But back in that time, a lot of them were to ABS structures and to corporations that are using it for commercial paper, right? So like funding working capital, perfectly valid corporations. But if all of a sudden perfectly valid corporations start going bankrupt overnight, you're going to start like looking inside your money market fund and say like, hey, (laughs) I... The one thing I got to know is real is like my cash line item. And if it turns out my cash line item is not even real, like there's, and so all of a sudden there were huge outflows from any money market fund that had like corporate commercial paper in it or whatever. And so breaking the buck meant it started trading for less than its nav, its design nav of 1.00 and started trading, right? So now look at stable coins today, like Tether, and circle um, USD, you know, like USDC, those are meant to be the interchange between fiat and crypto, right? Like how do you build an on-ramp and an off-ramp that allows for it? Well, they've created a crypto currency called a stable coin that is in theory backed by US dollars. And it's pretty clear that circles stable coin is, there have always been rumors plaguing Tether, and Tether has never been able or never been willing to prove that it really is a fully backed um, stablecoin. And we should note, probably the single biggest public supporter of Tether, Sam Bankman-Fried. So we'll, we'll see what happens there. That could definitely cause contagion. But all that I was getting toward is saying, that doesn't necessarily, all of this doesn't necessarily kill the quote, cryptocurrency movement. I think it's making actually a pretty good argument for the Bitcoin maxis, right? Historically, the quote, Bitcoin maxis, they were cryptocurrency lovers who loved one and only one cryptocurrency, and they looked at everything else as potential fraud. And they would say, the only one of these where you can be absolutely certain it's not a fraud, you can't be certain it's going to be worth anything, but you can be certain it's not a fraud, is Bitcoin. And I think if we've seen anything in this is they're probably feeling pretty validated right now, right? It's like, look at all your shit coins. You guys are all thieves, you know? And so we'll see. I mean, you could say that this is another, 
you could look back five years from now and you're looking back at November of 2022, you could easily imagine saying that was another test of Bitcoin and it came through, right? And so in a way, like I can make an argument that it strengthens it. Now I can also make the argument that it calls into question everything, but I don't think this has to call into question Bitcoin. And then you can draw a hierarchy from there, you know, to Ethereum might be the next best. And then after that, it's a lot of question marks. And I think those question marks, um, that the, the space that involves question marks is going to be plagued by a, a, a seven-year journey through the desert, in my opinion. And, and maybe they'll never come out the other side. All right, I'll give you the other side of it. Since compound's gone there, I'll say the I'll take the it hurts everything. Uh, I'll start with the basics. Look, uh, there are businesses that have some degree of leverage that's good. There are businesses where the leverage gets excessive, and it's always kind of a push and pull between the two. Um, I think that like you're seeing now, most of the Bitcoin people they definitely have an argument in the, on their on their side, you know, against crypto. So it's good to be a maxi. But like everyone is now saying, let's take, you know, our, our Bitcoin off exchanges, right? And it just really becomes this whole point of like, what are you doing now? Because Bitcoin sitting on exchanges, people were earning in income, like it was money being deposited, right? If you just left it there, right? On an exchange, you could earn interest, all right? So if you have to just take it and put it in cold storage, it becomes like savings under your bed again, right? And it's just like, all you know is the supply is finite, which brings you back to like, what is the use case for that of, of how many people and like, uh, how constricted are you to actually be able to transact it? Like, what's the process of you taking it off of cold storage and, and crystallizing it into from savings into money that's in, you know, the consumption based economy, right? If you no longer have this exchanges, right? Now, exchanges were fine up until the point that like clearly a lot of them got over leveraged and there was leverage in the system, right? And that's where you get into this argument of like, well, then they're going to have to be regulated. Maybe they're going to have to be back somebody. Maybe there's going to be a minimum posted capital. Maybe they need insurance, right? And then that takes you back to then like, well, then why are we doing this, right? Like now there's a subset that could say, maybe you should have a digital gold, right? And, you know, that will bring you closer to an argument around CBDCs, right? And central bank currencies, if you want to really get into that point. So I do think that like, while like I, I've been listening to those like nonstop spaces with Kim.com and it's like, everyone get your stuff off the exchange. I'm like, maybe you should be thinking to yourself, get your stuff into cash, all of it now, <laughs> right? And dump all your Bitcoin because if, the, if, 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 if you look at Alameda research, which was a massive players balance sheet, you come away thinking that like, there's really like a few hundred million dollars of real assets on here, okay? Uh, and, and it's and and it, it, it's it's borrowed 15, 16 billion against it. I mean, serum is a joke, all right? There's a bunch of stuff that is just like a very super long duration trade. The stock market has been dealing with this as rates have gone up, right? You can see the shell shock. This is a way worse version of it. The leverage is way more significant. So like if you're Solana, don't be surprised if you fall another 80%. If you're Axie, don't be surprised if you fall 95%. Like that jig is up, right? Like nobody's going to lend against that collateral, you know, at anything close to what was happening before. So that's unwinding in real time, right? Then there's a wealth effect 
a lot of people had money on FTX. It's just now gone. Call it 50%, 70%, right? You may have been like, you may not have been in a shit coin. You may be in Bitcoin. It makes no difference because you don't have your Bitcoins anymore. You had them on their exchange, right? And you were earning 6%, 7%, whatever. That goes back to the whole game, you know, of the fact that people want to earn some yield with their savings. And like the idea of Bitcoin can only work if it's gold, okay? And all you care about is its price, not its yield. You're not using it as collateral, right? And that's just really going to be on the whims and, 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 and tides of, uh, you know, supply and demand of, uh, you know, the, the gold bugs of the world who w- w- want to bet on inflation, hedge against government, et cetera, money printing, so on and so forth. So I do think that for the, for like, you, you're going to see several waves of liquidations in this space. And if I was in the space, I wouldn't be thinking like the guys, I mean, I see them doing the live stuff and like, you know, like now like crypto.com is like the next in line, it seems to be that they focused on and like the bank runs and, and, you know, Binance is, you know, putting up its, you know, its Goldman's type position as, as uh, uh, the, the, the strongest remaining player in the space. But like, I also see these people, they're all in crypto and it's like, they're almost doing the autopsy of their own space, right? Without thinking too much about that. So like, if I own a bunch of Bitcoin, I'm like, I'm going to put it in cold storage. Is that what you should be thinking at 16,000? Or should you be thinking, I'm just going to sell it because there's going to be so much more liquidations, right? And that takes care of it all. All right, I think that's enough for today. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, it gets back to the whole, all the, to go back to our equity stuff, all the COVID hangovers and, how you're not, we don't, may not be at bottom until Bitcoin gets back to where it was pre-COVID, but. And that story- What's amazing is there's so much more we could talk about. <laughs> Venture capitalists, you know, it's amazing. What a story. Yeah, it's, well, market always delivers something. I guess that's what we could be grateful for as long as we stay out of the way. So, Compound, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to finally have you on the podcast. And, uh, Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was great. And uh, you guys are a must listen. I I do every week or it used to be every week when you dropped every week, Akram. Let's go. I'll take the, we all know Akram could talk more if we gave him the time. I, I'll take the blame for that. So, uh, but yeah, we'll try to do more and hopefully have you on again sometime in the future. Sounds great. Thank you guys. All right. Thanks guys. Thank you for listening to the Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, or anything else. We aim to publish this every Tuesday morning and love to hear from you. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really be grateful as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Shortman Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by Soquel. Thank you for listening and see you next week.